I don't know about you, but I hope, this happened last night during worship. It happens to me almost every time where we gather corporately to worship. And, and it's just those moments where you feel a hug from God. And I hope that all of us position ourselves every week to get a hug from God. I hope you're experiencing those hugs, those tender hugs from our Lord. Yeah? It happens to me a lot individually. It happens to me a lot collectively when we're together, worshiping together, to get a collective hug from God um, during worship. Wow, this is the best day of my life. It's just sitting there. I have no idea how that got there, but I'm glad it's here. This is God's provision for my life. We, um, I'm trying to think if I'm missing anything else. We have communion at the end, and I'm looking forward to that. We finished the book of Galatians. We are now going to go into the book of Ezra. And it's one of my favorite things to do is to do an overview and kind of pull the lens back a little bit. Otherwise, if we just kind of dive into Ezra, we might get a little lost as what's happening. And it's tough because you're not sure how far to pull the lens back. So I think I pulled it back far enough, I hope. Um, I love doing this. I love... Uh, doing overviews because it just causes me to wrestle with much larger chunks of scripture to wrestle with bigger pictures so i had a blast this week i'm going to have a blast teaching you if you don't have a blast i'm totally fine with that because i'm going to be up here having a great time i think you'll have a blast with me um i'm really excited about this new adventure with you guys uh through the book of ezra just so you know um Ezra kind of goes with Nehemiah, and then right after Nehemiah is the story of this wonderful character named Esther. And so we're going to do Ezra, then we're going to go back to the New Testament, then we're going to, go, then we're going to do New, Nehemiah, then we're going to go back to New Testament, then we're going to do Esther, and then we're going to go back to the New Testament. So that's kind of what's happening. I've got the next six books all mapped out. Seriously, I'm really, really excited about that. Love you guys. Love this church. Love that we do this together. What a privilege and, and what a joy. Okay, with that, let me open up with this. Oh, I had asked you guys on a couple of occasions if you'd be willing to read the book of Ezra in one sitting. Was anybody able to do that? Raise your hand if you did. That's fantastic. That's a lot of people. We had a good chunk last night do the same thing. Thank you for doing that. I think that'll be really helpful. So, I'm going to open with this. Warren Wearsby is one of my favorite commentators, and he, he opens up, uh, I'm going to open up with something he said uh, um, you know the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, by Oswald Chambers? So Wearsby quotes him. He says, In My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers boldly states this. Oswald Chambers says, I'm thankful that the Lord gives us difficult things to do. Hmm. And Wearsby continues. He says, As many of us have learned, when the Lord tells us to do difficult things, it's because He desires for us to grow. We all know that. The Lord desires for us to grow. In God's hall of heroes, if you will, in God's hall of heroes are the names of nearly 50,000 Jews who in the year 538 B.C. left captivity in Babylon for responsibility in Jerusalem. They left captivity in Babylon for responsibility in Jerusalem. And I'm going to talk about that in a second. God had called them back home to do a difficult job, to rebuild the temple and the city and restore the Jewish community in their own land, which they had been exiled from. This noble venture involved a four-month journey, plus a great deal of faith, courage, 
sacrifice. And even after they arrived in the holy city of Jerusalem, life didn't get much easier. But as you read the inspired record, you can see the providential leading of the Lord from start to what? To finish. What God starts, (laughs) He's going to finish every time. Many of us say, God's not done with me. No, but He will finish, won't He? Of course He will. He will finish what He has started within us. I said earlier that they left captivity in Babylon for responsibility in Jerusalem. They left captivity in Babylon for responsibility in Jerusalem. Our lives are the same way. Whatever that Babylon is, whatever captivity that we left, God didn't just call us from captivity from Babylon, but He called us to responsibility in Jerusalem, to responsibility in the church, to be the church the right way, the way He's called us to be the church. And so, so much is discussed in Scripture about what it means to be responsible in the church of God. And it reminds me of Romans 8.31, when we understand the story of the return. It reminds me of Romans 8.31, that if God be for us, who can possibly be against us? So, we're going to pull the lens back. We're going to go back to First and Second Chronicles because that's the book that leads into Ezra and Nehemiah. As literary history, these two books, First and Second Chronicles, they supplement the records of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Those um, six books kind of go together, if you will. In contrast to First and Second Kings, which were written during the exile when the people were leaving Jerusalem, First and Second Chronicles covers the same period, but they were written after the people returned from exile, interestingly enough. Rather than focusing on failure the way the books of the kings, First and Second Kings does, Chronicles focuses on the hope of God's plan. But we need both, don't we? We need to understand sometimes what our failures are to know what God is calling us to, to say, wow, I've fallen short, and to confess our sin. And so it's okay sometimes to focus on failures, but God doesn't leave us there. He wants us to focus on the hope that He has for us amidst those failures. Amen? Sometimes we fail God, don't we? But God doesn't leave us there. And so Kings allows us to focus on our failures, and Chronicles allows us to focus on the hope found only in our God. Hmm. Collectively, these six books run through the history of the nation of Israel, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. From the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all the way to when the southern kingdom of Judah falls to Babylon. The Hebrew title of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, is this: "The Matters of the Days of the Monarchies." It's pretty accurate. Our English title comes from Jerome in 400 A.D. Jerome was a theologian and he, he, he wanted to call it a chronicle of the whole divine history. We just now call it First and Second Chronicles. But I like that too, a chronicle of the whole divine history. Chronicles retells the story of the God of history. The books of Chronicles teach us this, that God's presence is more than a king's presence. God's presence is more, I'm sorry, more important than a king's presence. God's presence is more important than a king's presence. And obedience to God is more important than political power and national status. That's a good word for us today, isn't it? The centrality of the temple, the proper worship of Yahweh, and the authoritative role of the priests and the Levites. 
emphasized the divine presence associated with Solomon's temple as a house of prayer and as a house of God's holy word. And that's what the Lord is leading him back to. Chronicles leads the post-exilic community, those who were exiled, right? So back, Chronicles leads the post-exilic community to refocus from monarchy to what? Theocracy. To get them refocused from monarchy back to theocracy. Getting their eyes off of man and back on God. Am I the only one who's guilty of that sometimes? We get our eyes focused on the wrong things. And we worry about man. And God says, don't worry about man. Don't worry about me. Get your eyes focused on me. A recurring theme in Chronicles is that repentance and reform are a means of God's blessings. Repentance and reform are a means of God's blessings. We want the blessings, but we sometimes fail in our reform and our repentance. We want blessing, but we don't take the time to repent and to reform. The concept, and I mentioned this back in Psalms a little over a year ago, the concept of what's called the retribution principle is found in Chronicles. You guys may not remember that. It's the idea that God will bless His people with covenant blessings when they are faithful, but He will punish them with covenant curses when they are unfaithful. That's known as the retribution principle. Or simply put, obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to trouble. That's called the retribution principle. We say, well, does that still exist today or is that an Old Testament philosophy or a thing? We just left the book of Galatians. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And Pastor Doug um, addressed these verses very eloquently a few weeks back, perfectly, about what we would know as reaping and sowing or the retribution principle. Galatians 6 it's after First and Second Corinthians. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived, church. <laughs> God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Retribution principle, reaping sowing. God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. Chronicles points out that the Sovereign Lord would continually, uh, or continue to providentially intervene in Hebrew history to accomplish the prophetic vision of Zion or Jerusalem as the political center and, and religious center of all the nations, that God is the center. He's the focal point of everything, of all nations. Amen? Turn to Zechariah. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. Turn to Zechariah. 14. You have Zechariah, then Malachi, and then the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Zechariah, then Malachi, and then Matthew. God must and will be the centerpiece of all the nations. Verse 9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and His name, the only one. Is that amazing? That's where God belongs. There's only one throne and He's meant to sit on it. And He will make that come to pass. With that in mind, we're going to read Second Chronicles chapter 36. It's the last chapter before we go into Ezra. It kind of sets the table for when we jump into Ezra. Second Chronicles 
all of chapter 36, which is 23 verses, but I say we pray first. <laughs> Lord, we are incredibly grateful for your word written for us. Lord, we thank you that as you restored the people during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, Lord, that you're restoring people today as we witnessed last week when we saw seven people get baptized because you have redeemed their life and restored their life because they have repented and you are blessing them because of it, Lord. God, we just pray that you open up our hearts and our minds to your word this morning and over the next few months as we delve through the book of Ezra. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Okay, so let me find where Second Chronicles is and then I can join you guys. Okay, I think I got it here. Second Chronicles, chapter 36. Then the people of the land took Joahaz, the son of Josiah, and they made him king in place of his father in Jerusalem. And Joahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he, he reigned three months in Jerusalem. It's like, what happened? Not old age, right? Then the king of Egypt deposed him at, it, at Jerusalem and imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and one talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Joahaz, his brother, and brought him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was the ruling empire of the time, uh, came up against him and bound him with bronze, cha bronze chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Oh, heartbreaking. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations which he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Imagine, he's in second grade, right? He's got to go to school the next day and say, man, I lost my job. You know, like, well, you, know, you didn't make your bed or something? Like eight years old? Eight. Verse 10. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord and made his kinsman Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And he did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for God. And so he rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. And furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people who were very unfaithful following the, uh, all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again and again and again by his messengers, as we know through Old Testament scriptures, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God is so good. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, and we just read, God cannot be mocked. And they despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. 
until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his officers, he brought all of that to Babylon. And then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. What a sad story. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, when the Persians took over the Babylonian Empire. To fulfill the word of the Lord, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years had gone by. And now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the pagan king, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom. And he also put it in writing saying this, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. Wow, that kind of sets the table for what's happening in Ezra, in Nehemiah, as people go back to restore what was ruined. So, there were three deportations. There were three deportations of the people of Israel to Babylon. The first one happened in 605. The first deportation was 605 B.C. The second deportation was eight years later in 597 B.C. And the third deportation happened 11 years after that in 586 B.C., which is also uh, the same year that Nebuchadnezzar wiped out Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. After 70 years, which we just read about at the end of Chronicles, verse 21, I think, after 70 years, a new world power emerges, and it's the Persian, the Persian Empire. And Cyrus is this empire's king. And just as Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument for judging his people, Cyrus is his means of restoring his people. And God does that sometimes in our lives too. He uses certain instruments in our lives to judge us and certain instruments to restore us because God's in control, because God is sovereign, but primarily because God loves us. Sometimes we lose sight of that. We get disappointed about the judgment. But God loves us, and he brings judgment to us so that he can restore us. And so he uses Nebuchadnezzar to judge, but he uses Cyrus to restore. And so as the new emperor, one of Cyrus' first actions is to decree that a temple, the temple needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and that anyone who wishes to return back to their homeland is free to do so. So, the purpose of the books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, is to show that throughout Israel's history, obedience leads to blessing or restoration, and disobedience leads to judgment or leads to trouble. In this case, the exile, that they were exiled out of their homeland. Because the kingdom is not dependent on a king, but because the kingdom is really spiritual, God's kingdom is spiritual, the priests and the temple are therefore of highest importance, that people can get their eyes focused back on God. 
not on man. Check this out. Turn back to Second Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to read verses 11 through 22. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Who built the temple? Solomon. So Solomon's done. He's done building the temple, and God says, all right. We just cut fresh keys for the doors to the temple. Everything is good. So here's the deal. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace, and he successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. And so the Lord appeared to Solomon at night, and he said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for me as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens, Solomon, so that there is no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Many of us know that verse. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you. And this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword amongst all the peoples. They're going to talk about it, like what happened. As for this house which was exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them from the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this adversity upon them. Mm. Ezra and Nehemiah form a single book in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. And so it's hard to take them apart from one another, which is why we're going to do Ezra and then go back to Nehemiah. The purpose now of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is to show the numerous ways, the numerous ways that God was faithfully at work to restore the people of Israel to their land after being exiled to Babylon. I suppose many of us have seen numerous ways that God restored us. The numerous things that God did to bring us back into a restored relationship with Him. God providentially brought favor with the Persian kings and helped the Israelites overcome the obstacles presented by their enemies as they rebuilt the temple walls of Jerusalem and established the law of Moses, God's word, as the foundation of their society. More than 100 years is covered from Ezra to the end of Nehemiah, just so you know. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries. 
they had complementary ministries, which is what the body of Christ is, right? They had complementary ministries which focused respectively on the spiritual components, which is what Ezra focused on, and the physical components, which is what Nehemiah focused on in the rebuild of their community, in the rebuild of their city, in the rebuild of their temple. Both Ezra and Nehemiah were officials who came to Jerusalem from a, a place called Susa in Persia during the reign of Artaxerxes I. Both were members of some standing in Persian royal circles. Ezra was both a priest and a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses. Nehemiah was the governor, well known for his administrative skills. We need that, don't we? Look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Look at Nehemiah, Ezra, and then Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. It tells us as much. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, as well as the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they had heard the words of the Lord. Just a a beautiful picture as the restoration process was beginning. Nehemiah was formerly a cupbearer in the court of the king of Artaxerxes I. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. Nehemiah chapter 1. The last verse of chapter 1 is verse 11, then we'll read the first few verses of chapter 2. Where Nehemiah goes before his king, his servant, this king, Artaxerxes, he says, Oh Lord, I, or he's praying at this point, Oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before the king. Now I was the cupbearer to the king, chapter 2. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, so he did his job as the cupbearer, and he took up the wine and then he gave it to the king. And now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king sees that he's sad and says, Why is your face sad, that you are not, uh, uh, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart, the king says. And then I was very much afraid, and the king said, he sa- I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, my hometown, the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And so the king said to him, what would you request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven and he said to him, I want to go back and restore my city and restore the good name of my God. And the king granted that request. The efforts of Ezra and Nehemiah to reform the religious, social, and economic life of the Hebrew city were rooted in a nationalistic sense of pride for the tradition of the Hebrew forefathers. And a genuine concern, listen, for the reputation of the name of their God, of the name of Yahweh, in the midst of pagan opposition. They had a genuine concern for the reputation of the name of their God. It's always one of my biggest concerns is making sure that my life is lived in such a way where I want to protect the reputation of the name of my God. Sometimes I fail, I suppose, yeah? And I suppose sometimes you fail too. But gosh, I hope we, like them, have a genuine concern for the reputation of the name of our God to the people that are looking at us when we proclaim His name amongst our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers. Go to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9, verses 10 
through 15, where their hearts cry out in this regard about protecting His name and how they've let the Lord down. Ezra 9, verses 10 through 15. Now, our God, what what shall we say after all we've done? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess, it's an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which I have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, you said, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us (laughs) less than our iniquities deserve. Mm, God is so good. And we'll miss that if we don't see His compassion and His goodness. We miss that. You have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? No. Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? Oh Lord, you are righteous, for we have left an escaped remnant. We have been left in escape room, and as it is this day, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. They wanted to restore the name and the reputation of their God. They wanted to get it right, as many of us do, and continue to try to make that right. These two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, they recount the restoration of four things, and I'll put it on the screen. Ezra and Nehemiah tell or recount the restoration of the temple, And that's Ezra chapters 1 through 6. The restoration of the community, the church, if you will, the people of God. And that's Ezra 7 through 10. And then the restoration of Jerusalem, the city and the wall and the temple. And that's Nehemiah 1 through 7. And then the restoration of the covenant, which is the last chapters of Nehemiah. We'll toggle back to that. Let me go to the next one, then we'll put that back up there. Ezra and Nehemiah encompass three returns. There was three returns. Just like there was three deportations, there's three returns. The first return, or phase one, if you will, is Ezra chapters 1 through 6. Phase two is Ezra 7 through 10. And phase three is all of Nehemiah. That one's pretty easy. We'll leave that up for a second, then we'll go back to the other one if, if you wanted to write that down. The restoration account. So I'll leave that to you guys back there. Thank you. We see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah God's providential rule of human history. Three ways. You're going to love this. Three providential ways that God has acted in human history. First, in Ezra and Nehemiah we see the hand of God upon these men. We see the hand of God upon Ezra and upon Nehemiah. Go to Ezra chapter 7. You were just in chapter 9. Go to Ezra chapter 7. Look at verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him... Can you imagine? All he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Wouldn't you love to go to your boss? 
that way. Say, I'm going to ask my boss for a raise. And he's going to grant me all that I requested because the hand of the Lord my God is upon me. Check out verse 9 in case we didn't get verse 6. Chapter 7, verse 9. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. Why? Because the good hand of his God was upon him. Oh, it's also in 27 and 28 of chapter 7. Look at verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And then you look in chapter 8, go to verse 22, and you see it again. He says, I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake his name. It's also in 8.18. It's also in 8.31. But let's look at Nehemiah. Is his hand upon Nehemiah? You bet it is. Look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18. It's also in verse 8, but we're just going to read Nehemiah 2, verse 18. When he says, I told them how the hand of my God has been favorable to me. And also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build. And so they put their hands to the good work. I love that. So that's the first providential way we see God working, is we see the hand of God upon Ezra. We see the hand of God upon Nehemiah. The second way is we see that God orchestrates kings and empires. We see that God orchestrates kings and empires. He did it with Cyrus between Ezra and Nehemiah. God works through Cyrus, King Cyrus, King Darius, and King Artaxerxes, all of the Persian Empire. Check it out. Go to Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. This is God orchestrating kings and empires in Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he sends out a proclamation. So that's Cyrus. Well, look at Ezra chapter 6. There's a new king. God's in trouble. He got to Cyrus, but he won't get to this next guy. Chapter 6, verse 22. Now, look at verse 1. It says, then King Darius. Now it's King Darius' turn, right? So that's in verse 1, so we know that we're talking about King Darius when we read verse 22. Verse 22 says, they observed the feast of unleavened bread for seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Okay, he got away with Cyrus, he got away with Darius, but he's not going to get to the next guy. Oh, he'll get to the next guy. Look at chapter 7 of Ezra. And this is Artaxerxes. And you can look at verse 11 to make sure it's Artaxerxes, where it says, now this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra. That's verse 11, clarifies who we're talking about in verse 27 of chapter 7. 
Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So God puts his hand upon Ezra and he puts his hand upon Nehemiah and he can orchestrate kings and empires as we just noticed, no matter who they are. It's a new regime. Oh no, not for God. Not a problem. And third, we see fulfillment of prophecies regarding restoration. We see in these stories of Ezra and Nehemiah the fulfillment of prophecies regarding a restored people. God had declared through the prophets, especially Jeremiah, that after he judged his people and gave them over to the Babylonians, that he would bring them back 70 years later, which is how Second Chronicles 36, the last three verses, ends and how Ezra 1.1 opens. And he did exactly that. Somebody told me last night, when it said 70 years, that it was 70 years to the day. I think Bruce Cook told me that. I didn't know that. The guy's like, when I meant 70 years, I meant 70 years to the day. So the exile, the exile serves theologically, listen, not only as God's punishment, which they deserved. They were in covenant and they broke covenant. So the exile serves theologically not only as God's punishment of Israel, but also His purging and purification of Israel. Sadly, it is often the only way we see the Lord as a punisher. Might we all learn to praise Him for the love He extends in His efforts to purge us and to purify us. When He purges us and purifies us, it's not punishment. It's to purge us and purify us for our godliness, for righteousness, so He can bless us. Our God is so patient. He's so compassionate. He's so loving. The remnant who survived and owned up to their disobedience and unfaithfulness, they emerged as a spiritually refined group of people, as you would expect, right? Their worship became more focused. They came to a clearer sense of their identity as God's people. It was important for the community who was despairing over God's apparent neglect to recognize that obedience to covenant stipulations was a mandatory prerequisite for Yahweh's blessing and restoration of Israel as His special possession. To recognize that Israel is the covenant people of God just like we are. Whom the Lord must constantly remind and restore as a separate people. So it didn't just happen in the Old Testament. It's talked about in the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He says, church, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Our God is so consistent. He's so faithful. He's so true to His Word. In closing, the people of Israel are suffering from poverty, bewilderment, and low morale. The confidence and the wealth of the days of David and Solomon are gone, never to return. The new temple temple won't be as fine as the old one and will only be built after much discouragement and many delays. Idolatry and immorality have weakened the people's spiritual health and corrupted their society. They have been conquered and displaced for two generations. They have no king, no army, no empire. (laughs) Sometimes that's exactly where we need to be so God can start reshaping 
us. Now at last, there's an opportunity for rebuilding and a new beginning. God loves to rebuild. He loves to give us new beginnings. Despite the trauma of past centuries, God still has a purpose for His people. And some of us are in a trauma. Maybe we just left a trauma. But God always has a plan for us. Has a purpose for us. He is their King. And His law will be their way to a new and restored life. And what a perfect way to go into communion. Because God is still restoring. He's still restoring. And He sent His Son to restore us. What a perfect picture of restoration.